from all appearances, no luck. But there was, of course, much more to the story than appearances. No one could possibly have understood what was really happening as Jesus hung on that Roman cross in the hill of Calvary. No one could conceive the cosmic implications of that sacrificial act. But as time has passed, God has privileged His people to assemble the pieces and the truth has dawned upon us. What are those pieces? We've assembled the pieces of Old Testament prophecies. We've been able to take together those Old Testament prophecies to tie them together, to understand them more carefully in light of what has happened. And we've been able to take with that also understanding the suffering and the glories of Messiah and to couple those Old Testament prophecies to the facts of Christ's resurrection. Now we have this time perspective. We have this opportunity. Those who saw Jesus crucified did not have that same opportunity. But putting together the Old Testament prophecies, putting together the, the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead as He prophesied, we put together as well further revelation communicated through New Testament authors. And putting together all of these pieces, we gather this morning in full realization that the death of Jesus Christ was nothing less than a high priestly act of cosmic proportions. It did not look like it on the day that he gave his life. But now we can see that this is what it was. We now see that Jesus willingly offered his life in our place to suffer God's just wrath against our sin. And we see now that as our great high priest, Jesus presented his finished work to God. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. As we prepare to commune with the Lord around this table, I'd like us to focus on the meaning and significance of that simple phrase. At first glance, it may not strike us as all that important. Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand. But this concept is of crucial importance to our understanding of the priestly nature of Christ's death and resurrection. This is one of those key pieces of New Testament revelation that helps us string it all together and see it all for what it really is. Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand. The notion of Jesus sitting down, I believe, is calibrated in part to draw a stark contrast to the priestly system under the Mosaic law. In, in fact, in broader terms, the author of Hebrews sees the entire Mosaic system, the tabernacle with its inner sanctum, the priesthood with its elaborate system of ritual sacrifice. All of this are shadowy reflections of higher realities which Jesus fulfilled. Jesus came declares the author of Hebrews, to serve as the final high priest and to offer the ultimate sacrifice, his own body. He entered then on the force of this ultimate sacrifice into the very throne room of God. And it is not without significance that having fulfilled this ultimate work, this quintessential priestly act, Jesus sat down in God's presence. That is profound revelation. Under the Mosaic law, the high priest entered the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, as we know, only one time per year, that on the Day of Atonement. 
And you can bring with you your knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and our discussions of this over many years. And think of that temple area, that tabernacle in particular. And as that priest would walk on that day of atonement behind that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, from the tabernacle, think of that priest going behind that curtain. And we know there placing blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and there are the angels on top, the gold-plated angels, over which the very presence of God hovered. In a unique way, His presence had come and filled this tabernacle and, had ho- and hovered there. And the priest stood before the presence of God for those few moments of time. It was an awesome moment for the people of Israel and certainly for that individual priest. But one thing that high priest never did behind the curtain was to sit down in God's presence. He stood in the presence of God. He stood there where God had objectified His presence in a unique way in the nation of, among the nation of Israel. He stood there for a moment of time as He fulfilled His responsibility as priest, but He never sat down. But the final priest did. And this is a note that is sounded early and often in the book of Hebrews as highly significant to our understanding of the priestly work of Christ. So I'd like us, as we prepare our hearts to commune with the Lord around this table, to look at several references to Christ sitting at the Father's right hand. I'd like to show and demonstrate here just briefly that this is a major theme to the author of Hebrews But more importantly than just understanding the argument of Hebrews here, or this theme in Hebrews, to prepare our hearts to commune with this Lord who reigns above. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we read that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And as verse 2 brings out, He is the final revelation of God. The ultimate revelation, superior to all the prophets who had come before. But I'd like us to note very specifically the second half of verse 3. It says there, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he had provided purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. In one phrase, here in the English, one sentence... This epitomizes the work of Christ as developed in the book of Hebrews. First of all, we see the sacrificial work of Christ, our great high priest. In this phrase, he provided purification for sins. This is Old Testament sacrificial language, obviously. Under the Mosaic law, the life of the sacrificial animal was substituted for the life of the sinner, providing the worshiper with purification from the defilement of sin. This is precisely what the death of Christ accomplished for us. The bloody death of Jesus provides His people with purification from sin. And we gather this day to remember this sacrifice. We come as those who are needy of purification. We understand that. In our original nature, fallen and needy of the forgiveness of sin, We now come to remember. 
and to commune with this Lord who gave his life for us. We see here, first of all, then the sacrificial work of Christ, our great high priest. But in that second phrase, he sat down at the right hand of God, we see the exaltation of Christ, our coming king. He sat down. This position assumes Christ's resurrection and exaltation following his sacrificial death and is a unique way that the author of Hebrews refers to the resurrection of Christ. Usually he uses the phrase resurrection to refer to the resurrection body of believers and to the future, but with Christ it is enough to say he reigns at the right hand of God, assuming that he rose from the dead. But the main point here that I'd like, at least the point I'd like to focus upon here, is the ancient imagery of sitting down at the right hand of the king. This was a position of honor and of unparalleled power. He sits down, you notice here, at the hand of the majesty in heaven, referring, of course, to the Father, and as one commentator puts it, to the omnipotent glory of God. Now, what does it mean that he sits down? Let's think of this for a little bit, a little bit further. This is not necessarily to be taken in literal terms. God is, of course, omnipresent spirit, and in that sense has no physical throne room. Nonetheless, God does objectify His presence at times, and we do see that is also the case in heaven. We can see that in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation, that God is seated on a throne in some of these revelations. We don't need to worry ourselves too much about how literal this is, nor could we probably even begin to conceive of the reality of heaven and the dimension that is there. That's not really the need to think of Jesus sitting on a throne physically, literally, and does he do nothing else. Of course, that's not the case. But all of that being set aside, what we do see here and should understand by this phrase is that being seated at the Father's right hand is a confirmation of Christ's conquering power. This is a reference directly to Psalm 110 and verse 1. Quoted, also, quoted in verse 13, which indicates obviously that this is the context from which the author is drawing. The Lord says to my Lord, says Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is a prophetic word that the Jews understood to refer to Messiah. And here it is now applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this does not mean that Jesus sits there all the time and that he will never have anything to do until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, as Psalm 110 says. Obviously in Psalm 2, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 in particular, we see that Jesus will very actively come and defeat his enemies. But the point here is that his work has been accomplished, that he is the conquering power over his enemies, and they will be made, as Psalm 110 says, a footstool for his feet. The imagery here is that in that ancient setting, kings, as they would conquer another king, would often put their foot on the neck of the conquered king. A means of saying, should I choose, I could step on your neck and break it and kill you. I have completely conquered this is the imagery that is used here. Christ's victory is complete. That he sat at the Father's right hand means that he is the conquering king. 1 Peter 3 acknowledges this as well. Verse 22 says, Jesus Christ has gone into the heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
So being seated at the Father's right hand is a way of saying that Jesus reigns. He has conquered all enemies. Let's note, if, we, if you would just keep your finger here, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And note how Paul puts that here, that same idea. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. Speaking here of the power of God, which, that is that this power that is working in His mighty strength, which He, Ephesians 1.20, exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Obviously, here again, being seated at the Father's right hand is a position of authority, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given. So as we eat this meal together today, Jesus reigns as the conquering King of the universe, the sovereign Lord of all things. There is no force, there is no power, there is no authority over which Jesus does not reign as sovereign Lord. Is there not sweet irony in this? We have come to remember his death as a common criminal. But we are here to say that he rules sovereignly over all things. By his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin. He has conquered death and Satan and hell and all the powers of darkness. Jesus reigns supreme. There's a second implication, I think, here of him being seated at the Father's right hand. First of all, it's a confirmation of his conquering power. We've noted that here for a few moments. Secondly, it is a confirmation, or rather a demonstration, of his finished work. Why is Jesus seated at the Father's right hand? Is he exhausted? Is he tired? Does he have to sit down to take a load off, as we say? Obviously, that's not the case. He is sitting down here because his work is finished. As God rested on the seventh day of the creative week, not from exhaustion, but because his creative work was finished, so Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand because the work of salvation has been complete has been completed. In like manner, this redemption is finished. We are soon here to commemorate this morning the last sacrifice for sin. There will be no other. This is the last one. Jesus sat down in the Father's presence. Now, please turn to chapter 8 of Hebrews. So we pick up this same theme. In chapters 8 through 10, the author of Hebrews demonstrates the superior priesthood of Christ. And would it not make sense that if he has a superior priesthood, he would have a superior ministry? In fact, he does, and this is the point of chapters 8 through 10. But we're coming off of chapter 7, which speaks of the sacrifice of Christ as being the last sacrifice, the end-all sacrifice, a once-for-all offering. And so Christ's ministry is superior to Aaron's because he ministers in a superior sanctuary in the interest of a better covenant and offering a one-time and final sacrifice. 
Now once again, in that context, saying all of those things, exalting Christ, we notice the phrase, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 1 of chapter 8, the point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. He is sitting down at the right hand of God, demonstrating again the superiority of Christ's priestly service. Not only does Christ enter the superior tabernacle, the very throne room of God, he sits down and abides in God's presence. Chapter 10 and verse 11, which we read just a few moments ago, and we know well and often read during times of communion such as this because they speak so profoundly to the work of Christ, its finished nature. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. We see here again the conquering idea. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see in verse 13 the first idea that we've been developing. The idea that he is the conquering king. The second idea is found there in verse 14. This is the final sacrifice being made perfect forever. Making perfect forever those who are being made holy. So these two themes again converge around the idea of Jesus seated at God's right hand. The priests of Israel entered the earthly tabernacle to fulfill their daily regimen of ritual service. And what did they do when they were done? They left. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement each year. Walking behind the veil, he performs his religious service prescribed in the law. And what does he do when he's done? He leaves. But having given his body in sacrifice for the purification of sin, Jesus Christ entered the throne room of God, and he didn't leave. He sat down at the Father's right hand where he reigns today. He sat down because the sacrificial price of mankind's redemption had been fully and completely secured. The work of purification from sin was finished. Nothing more could be added. And so he sat down. Now as the book of Hebrews winds its way to an end, it grows increasingly practical these are not matters simply for high theology and stuffy theologians to think through. They are matters that are to affect our daily walk with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, the book begins to wind down and sounds this note yet again as it moves to more practical matters. Chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In other words, the work that Jesus Christ accomplished and the people who have walked by faith in God's promises through the centuries are intended to do what? They're intended to spur us on to righteous living. For that matter, this is one of the reasons that we come before the Lord's table and one of the reasons that we observe this meal 
In part, it is a sanctifying meal. That, by that, I don't mean that it gives us some unique grace in itself, but I mean that it is a sanctifying event. When our, this memorial meal is intended to get us to see the reality of the sacrifice of Christ so that we will be motivated to live righteously. When we genuinely perceive the sacrificial death of Christ, it sanctifies us. It changes us. Verse 2. Let us then fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You know, these people that are reading this book were going through some hard times. They were facing persecution in varying levels. And so what does the author say? Listen, this Jesus who went before us, this great high priest who is seated now in the presence of the Father, he did not do this academically. This is not just something we chase academically, but you should fix your eyes on him. He endured the cross. Now notice what it says. He scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only is his position at God's right hand intended to confirm his authority and the efficacy of his sacrificial death, it is intended to secure our concentration. We are to focus on the seated Christ, to focus on his exalted position and his finished work. We see him there, as this verse indicates, enjoying the presence of God. We see Him there experiencing the joy that was set before Him that led Him to endure this cross. We see Him there ruling the universe and interceding in our behalf. We see Him there having completed the work of our redemption. This is the Jesus we see seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we see Him there, our focus purifies us. We become, as creatures, we become like what we look at. We take on the characteristics of those things or those people or those realities that consume our attention. Our attention, says the author of Hebrews, is to be on the seated Christ. What a difference it would make in our daily walk if we saw Jesus as the King as the ruler of this universe, if we saw Jesus in our mind's eye as the final sacrifice for sin, the one who had paid the penalty of our wrongdoing. That's where our focus is to be fixed, says the author, on the seated Jesus. And so we gather before this throne, before... I got something mixed up there, didn't I? We gather before this table. There's not a throne here, this last I looked. We gather before this table, surrounded by this sweet irony. The Christ who died a violent death at the hand of his enemies, we celebrate as the reigning Lord. You wouldn't continue to remember someone's death for 2,000 years if remembering that death was nothing but a loss, was nothing but catastrophe, we remember this death because it was the way through to victory. 
We acknowledge Him today in this act of communion as the great prophet. Chapter 1, those verses before, verse 3, verse 2 in particular. The one through whom God speaks His ultimate word of revelation. We remember this Christ, secondly, as the priest, the great high priest, the one whose sacrificial death substituted for our own and provided the purification for our sins. And we gather before this table remembering Him as our King, the one seated at the right hand of the throne of God, reigning in glory as the completer of our redemption. And may that focus sanctify us and cleanse our souls as we continue to commune with Him. As we do so, there is a song that has been, I believe, recently written for just such a setting as this, and you'll find that in your worship sheet, if you will turn there, to the communion hymn. We'll sing it to the tune of O Sacred Head Now Wounded. <laughs> 